Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Robin. And you're listening to Bowel Moments. The podcast sharing real talk about the realities of IBD. Served on the rocks. rocks. This week, we talked to Julia Gasparri Perchnicki. Julia is a medical student who was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis when she was nine. She had a total colectomy at age 10. Her mom also has inflammatory bowel disease and also lives with a J pouch. She's now been diagnosed with Crohn's disease, and we talked to her about dealing with her new diagnosis and her chronic pouchitis and fistulizing disease. We talked to her about the treatments that she's tried for her fistulas, including some clinical trials. We talked to her about accommodations that she's taken advantage of, both in undergraduate and in medical school. And we talked to her about why she doesn't want to be a gastroenterologist and her passion for primary care. And we talked to her about how IBD impacts your sex life. So a warning to everyone that we do discuss sexuality and sex very openly in this episode, so it may not be appropriate for all audiences. Cheers. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bell Moments. This is Robin. Hey, guys. This is Alicia, and we are so delighted to be joined by Julia Gasperi Perchnicki. Close. But no that was cigar. awesome. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Julia, Hi. welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited to get to chat with you tonight. We are very excited to hear your story, but yeah. your first question is, what are you drinking? I am drinking a whiskey sour. <gasps> I discovered I love whiskey sours, I think in college. And this is actually one of my first times making it at home for myself. But when I knew that there was going to be the question of what are you drinking? I was like, that's what I'm going to be drinking. Oh, I love it when people put this much thought in it. Yay. Mm -hmm. Me too. Robin, what are you drinking? I'm trying to explore the wonder of teas and it's just not the same. I just want to let everybody out there know (laughs) it's just not the same, but I'm not going to go rogue. I'm going to be good and follow directions because I want my medication to work. So I am drinking, I've had it on the show before, but I just loved it so much. It's the lemon ginger tea and I put some fresh lemon in it and it makes it just delightful. I do feel like that tea you just described would be really good as an iced version too. Oh, probably so. Maybe I'll try that next time. What are you drinking, Alicia? Well, you know, I've mentioned this on the show multiple times that I have decided I'm an Aperol Spritz fan. So I have mentioned it recently and to you, and I then was like, I have to drink this now. So I'm I'm on the Aperol Spritz again. Cheers, guys. Welcome to the show. Cheers. Cheers. Julia, again, delighted to have you on the show. Next question for you you. though, is what is your IBD story? What's your connection to our community? So I'll give you the rundown of the last, oh geez, how old am I now? Last 15, 17 years of my life. I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis when I was nine years old. I had all the classic symptoms, the diarrhea, bloody bowel movements, abdominal pain, throwing up, all that fun stuff. My mom actually recognized it really fast, what was going on, because she also had ulcerative colitis and was diagnosed a few years prior to me. So she kind of ran the gamut before me, which was extremely helpful throughout my journey. But she noticed what was going on and got me in to see a peds GI doctor pretty fast. I got on quite a few different medications to start off and we quickly realized nothing was working. I kept getting worse and worse over the course of probably like eight or nine months. And by the time December hit of that same year, I was hospitalized right after Christmas. (laughs) I was 10 years old at that point and was diagnosed with toxic megacolon, the lovely, lovely toxic megacolon, and had to have 
kind of an emergent total colectomy. So obviously when I was that little, I really wasn't quite sure what was going on and I didn't have the capacity or ability to make any decisions, but my parents decided that was obviously the best and kind of the only option at that point. So I underwent the total colectomy with the three-step surgery J-pouch creation. So at age 10 through age 11, I had a stoma for the year, had the couple surgeries in there, got reversed, got the J-pouch made and lived my best life as a kid. Not really letting it kind of get me down after I had the surgery. I was pretty good for about seven years. I had very limited symptoms, pretty well controlled off of any like medications. I just took Imodium, which obviously we love Imodium. So that was good for seven years. And then senior year of high school, I started having some more symptoms and I actually kind of had like a syncopal episode at school. I passed out, got taken to the hospital. They realized I had a small bowel obstruction. So I had to have that surgically taken care of after failing the conservative therapy of like the NG tube, which we could talk about PTSD from NG tube insertions as a child. That never is fun. So I had a bowel obstruction surgery that year. Things were okay for a couple months. I went to college. October, my freshman year of college, I got another small bowel obstruction. So I had to have another surgery with a piece of my small intestine taken out. And then I was kind of chilling for another year or so. Symptoms were still not super controlled. I ended up going on a biologic medication. I started on Humira because my mom had pretty good success with Humira for a lot of years um, to control her refractory pouchitis. So they diagnosed me with that, got me on some biologics. I was doing okay. Stopped responding to Humira. Love when that happens too. And then switched to a medicine called Intivia, which I'm sure a lot of people know of. Then in 2021, I developed a perianal abscess and I had never had any anal disease with my ulcerative colitis. They were heading in the direction of indeterminate colitis with my diagnosis. They were like, we don't really think this is UC anymore because you shouldn't be having any more problems after the total colectomy cures you in quotes. Of course, that's not true. So was dealing with the indeterminate colitis, the refractory pouchitis on biologics, and then I developed this perianal abscess. And that was one of the most painful things. And I'm still kind of dealing with the repercussions of that. But I didn't realize how bad the perianal disease can be with IBD. Over the last two years, I have been trying to manage this new fistulalizing Crohn's that I have. I actually just had a procedure on Monday of this week of fistulotomy. Uh, originally, it was going to be just putting in another seton. I've had a seton before, that little rubber band they put in your butt to help open the, the fistula tract. Um, but she got in there and she was like, I think I can just take this out. So she went for it. So I'm recovering from that right now. I've been through stem cell trials to try to treat the fistulas unsuccessfully and a couple other many, many exams under anesthesia to drain the fistula tract and the abscesses that form. So that's kind of where I'm at now. I, I also just switched to another new biologic, Stellara. So we'll see how that goes. If that can help some of the inflammation in my gut. I don't have a ton of symptoms, which I'm extremely thankful for from like the diarrhea, frequency, urgency, bloody stools, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. I, I don't have any of those. So I feel like my disease is better controlled than it appears on scope. And then my fistulas are kind of my only other problem right now, which is a pretty big problem, but we're working on it. So that's the long and short of it. Yeah. <laughs> 
How long have you been on Stellara? Like, I just is it started, brand new? Yeah, I just started Stellara, I think two, three months ago now. I had the first infusion. I did one injection at home so far and I'm due in a couple of weeks for my eight week, like next injection. Did you have like a lot of fatigue when you first started? No, I did not. I have been really? extremely lucky with side effects of biologics. I have had almost no side effects from all the different biologics I've been on, except for injection site reactions. That's my only thing I get. I get the itchy red bumps and that's thankfully mostly what I get. I think I that sometimes is... feel a little tired, but I attribute that more to school than IBD. Yeah. I don't know. I'm always curious about that because several people I've talked to, I had like overwhelming fatigue just at the beginning, just in the first, like when I got the loading dose through infusion and like the first two shots, it was like, I could not stay awake. So tired. It's like, it was like I had been awake for weeks and had gotten zero sleep. Like I couldn't stay awake. And a lot of people that I talked to also experienced that. So I'm always like, how, how did you not experience that also? (laughs) That sounds pretty terrible. So I'm sorry you had to deal with that. And I will count my blessings on in that department. Talk a little bit more about your fistulas and Mm -hmm. what you've done to treat them. Can you tell us more about what is a fistulotomy? Like what exactly does that encompass? And then after that, I want you to talk about the trials, the stem cell trials for fistulas, please. Yes, of course. So a fistulotomy is a procedure. You are in the operating room under anesthesia and the colorectal surgeon kind of goes in. You're in what's called the lithotomy position, which is what women who give a vaginal birth are in. Like your knees, your legs are up and back. You're not aware of it, but they're basically going in and dissecting down the fistula tract. So they snip from the outside. They don't go through like the anal cavity. Like they don't go through your anus in the muscle that way. They go on the outside where the tract is. Dissect down, remove like like the fistula tract and kind of make the hole where you were previously draining from like closer to your butthole. So my previous fistula was more lateral to my butt. So she took out that fistula and then moved the drainage kind of closer to my butthole so that I will hopefully be able to just heal that closed and or have limited, very scant drainage that I can deal with much more pleasantly than continuing to get recurrent abscesses and stuff like that. And then the stem cell trials. So this was something I got involved with. I think it was July of 2022 was when I first started trying to get into this trial. So I'm very lucky. I don't think I said this. I live in the Cleveland area. Um, So the Cleveland Clinic is right here. Obviously, people have heard of the Cleveland Clinic, one of the best hospital systems supposedly in the US, which is awesome. They have a lot of clinical trials that they run out of there. And I got connected with a surgeon who was starting one up or starting a new arm of it. Uh, But it took a long time to kind of get enrolled because of legal proceedings, actually. So there was all this like legal battle or issues with the, the like the IP and like the data that was going to be coming out of the study or the company that makes the stem cells was like arguing with the primary investigator and my surgeon and stuff about, I don't know how they were sharing the data or money or something along those lines. So it took months and months for me to even get enrolled in the trial to start. And I'm dealing with like the continuous drainage, the pain. So my fistula will basically like try to heal like the outside opening will heal. But then that's bad because the pus that's draining gets stuck there. And then I get the abscess again, and then it'll like bust open is what I like to say. And I'll drain a bunch 
and it's like it was a cyclic problem. So it had some exams under anesthesia with the incisions and drainages of the, the abscesses on the fistula tract and then the cetons put in, but still was having the cyclic symptoms. So once I finally got in the trial, I was so excited because I was like, this has been marketed to me as like, oh, you know, 70 to 80% of patients like with perianal fistulas experience healing in this. It was really kind of, I'll say played up in favor of good results. And, you know, I'm a scientist, I'm in medicine, I support clinical research trials. I think it's super important for to move forward with with treatments and cures and things. So I was gung-ho about uh, starting the trial. The downside is clinical research trials, a lot of them are double-blinded, right? So you may be in the placebo group where you're getting like the whole procedure done, where they're injecting something into you, but it's really just saline, or you're in the treatment group where you're getting the injection of the stem cells. So I was told I wouldn't know what group I was in for the first three months. Then they would assess response, unblind me and the surgeon to what I had gotten. And if I didn't get the stem cells, I would get them at that time. So I was in the control group, of course, for the first like three to six months of this study. And I, you know, wasn't feeling like I was getting any better. So I kind of had a feeling that I maybe hadn't gotten the stem cells at that time. So after I think it was three to six months, then they did some more scans and then prepped me for another round of, of surgeries, which was actual stem cells this time. And I got two treatments of stem cells several months apart. And though I showed improvement on MRI, like the study protocol had lots of scans and questionnaires assessing your response to the stem cells. I showed a little bit of clinical, like um, like radiographic improvement there. They were saying that the fistula tract was getting smaller or the branch that I had off to another direction was getting smaller. Um, but unfortunately I was still having symptoms. I was like, guys, I'm still having the same stuff going on. Can I even expect like any sort of improvement? I was getting really discouraged and disappointed. So yeah, unfortunately for me, they did not work. And then the surgeon that was running this trial abruptly left the clinic for another practice in California. So that was kind of like done and over. And I was like, oh shit, like, what do I, what the heck do I do now? So that's kind of about the stem cell trials. Do you have any other questions about that? That's rotten. Yeah. That's so frustrating because you would think you would hope that somebody there would be able to at least finish the trial. But is it that in clinical trials that the money follows the PI if they're getting money or does the money stay with the institution? The money follows the PI most times. I think the clinic, what I was told was they didn't have anyone else that was able or willing to like step in to continue the trial. I think the trial she was running at the time was coming to an end. Like I was one of the last patients to get like the second treatment um, before she closed the trial and left. So I'm not exactly sure how all the money works, but my understanding is you have to have a sponsoring institution, right? But you're the primary PI and I'm sure they split money somehow, like the clinic would get some and the, the investigator would get some. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense because obviously they would need to fund their team, fund the things that they need in order to do the trial, but the actual trial is happening in the hospital system where they're you're taking the resources of the hospital to check people for all of the response to treatments and blah, blah, blah. So that does make yeah. sense. But I was just, yeah, all of a sudden was like, oh, that's so interesting because I think the money probably follows whoever was the person who got the money, not necessarily the institution that got the money. So I, that's interesting. 
Is that, are there any other trials? Because one of the things you wanted to talk about was research trials. So as a medical student, have you participated in trials as an investigator or, and, or have you been part of other trials as a patient? Yeah, as a med student, I am not as much into research. Um, I don't do any research into IBD myself, but I do participate in any kind of research that I can as I see the opportunities come up. So whether that's stem cells, I've done like research study groups, like in kind of like an interview setting to talk about like symptoms and pouchitis and IBD and all that good stuff. I've done like some of the COVID vaccine response studies with patients with IBD, like the blood test collections and surveys and interviews and stuff through that. So I I really enjoy being part of it. And hopefully down the line, it'll help other people that come after me, but I don't do any, any clinical trials as the researcher. You'll get there hopefully. But also, I mean, we just talked to Dr. Benzie Abraham and Dr. Jamie Kanukin here not long ago for our research roundup back in end of May. And one of the things they mentioned was that a lot of times folks with Crohn's disease that have fistulizing disease get excluded from clinical research because they want to kind of do proof of concept, I think, before they actually get it into the other population. So chances are you probably couldn't participate. Yeah. Now. And a lot of the like medication trials, like mm-hmm. phase three trials for like Crohn's or colitis medicines, you get excluded if you've had a colectomy. So that's another reason why I can't participate in those. Like, cause I'll see all the time, like, Hey, look at this research study. We're looking at this new drug, but you have to still have your colon. So <laughs> that excludes me from a decent amount as well. And once you become like the more complex patient or having more complications, it gets harder to, even though you're kind of the one that needs the more innovative stuff, you get excluded. Cause like you said, the safety and efficacy they're looking at for the regular IBD people. So you are in medical school. Tell us a little bit more about being in medical school as somebody with inflammatory bowel disease. And then also, how did you choose your specialty? Have you already decided kind of the path you want to go down? And how did you how did you decide that? Yes, I would love to talk about that. So I will talk just for a sec about getting to med school because it was it was a long journey. I always, you know, had in my head as a kid, oh, I'm gonna be a pediatrician. And then I got IBD and I was like, I don't know if I want to do anything in the medical field. Then as I continued to have experiences with really good doctors and really crappy doctors, I was like, I know I can do a better job than these crappy ones. And I want to be like these good ones. Um, Because as a patient, I think we have a much more unique perspective um, when we're taking care of other people um, as you know, doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs, nurses, um, anything in the medical field. I think if you have a chronic illness, you have a more relatable communication style, I think, with your patients. So as I went through college, I was like, yeah, this is this. I did lots of shadowing. I was like, this is this is what's going to be for me. So being in med school with IBD, I had IBD in college. I had accommodations in college, which was really helpful for just being able to have a little bit of flexibility with testing, like because I never wanted, I was always worried about the time crunch of testing, both in college and med school. Like, what if I got to go to the bathroom? What if I have to go to the bathroom three or four times? I need to not be penalized for that. So it was a big motivation for me to get accommodations in college and and now med school. Um, And a little bit of flexibility with attendance uh, is important for me because if I have doctor's appointments or procedures or I'm just not feeling well, there's protections there with accommodations. I've managed in med school. It's It's been pretty tough, honestly. Like the, the first year I started though was COVID. So it was easier. Like I was eased into it. We did most stuff at home, which was very easy for me as I was starting to get this like fistulizing Crohn's. 
it was easier for me to be able to go to appointments, get tests done, and not be worried about like missing class. And then second year, we transitioned back to full-time like on campus and stuff. And I I was doing okay. My professors were very understanding of like appointments and my... It's nice because like all my colleagues are like, they know what IBD is and they actually you know, ask me questions, which I really appreciate being able to provide like that perspective for them about what it's like to be a medical student with Crohn's disease. And I actually have a couple classmates that also are in the IBD community. So that was kind of cool to find out, but it's definitely, I find myself being a little more hard on myself, I think, as I'm going through school, because I do get fatigue. I don't attribute it to like the medicine I'm taking, but just the chronic illness of it. I feel like I can't stay up and study till two o'clock in the morning. I can't get up at six o'clock and start studying. I can't like go, go, go and just keep drinking caffeine and have no repercussions for my body, my physical health and my mental health too. So I feel like I never know as much as my classmates, probably a false assumption on my part, but it just feels like everybody's able to do more than me, which can be frustrating. But I I also try to remember like, I am dealing with a lot of shit and I am doing the damn thing still. And I'm going to be, my patients aren't going to care if I studied for eight hours that day, or if I got this score on my board exam, they're going to care about how I treat them, how I listen to them, how much time I spend with them. And that kind of brings me to what specialty I am choosing to go into. So I was thinking GI for a decent amount of time. I was thinking PEDS GI because I was a kid when I was diagnosed. And then I rotated through GI this year, actually. And the doc I was with, he was really nice. Maybe I got a skewed perception, but he just did scopes all day long. Like that was pretty much what he did. Scopes all day long. Didn't spend as much time with his patients. And then I was like thinking about the patient population, like the age ranges of people for the most part, and like their presenting complaints, which is a lot of the same thing every day. And I was like, do I really want to do all the same thing every day? Do I want to do Crohn's and colitis all day, every day and have it myself and like be in that space, taking care of people with um, IBD, with any kind of other GI complaint, liver disease, stuff like that. When I myself deal with that on a daily basis. And I was like, I think I'd be best served in a different specialty (laughs) that I could have a little more variety while also still doing some stuff with GI. So I want to do family medicine. I want to be somebody's primary care doctor. I love the variety of family medicine. I love the age range variety, the complaint variety, and being able to kind of be the first line. So I'm always in the back of my head, like if somebody comes in to the office and they're like complaining of like increased bowel movements, urgency, blood in the stool, I'm like, we got to make sure that you don't have X, Y, and Z. So that was kind of like eye-opening for me this year. So I was like, oh, I think I could do GI. And then I got there and I was like, I, I don't think I could do it. I think I would either be too invested, like get really upset, like with my patients and for my patients and just be still like in that same thing every day, all day, and then have to live my life also with IBD. Everybody always tells me, they're like, oh, you'd be great GI doctor. I'm like, but I don't want to. So I'm not going to. You're like, but would I, would I be a great GI doctor? I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. 
That's understandable. I mean, Mm -hmm. I made that decision recently in my professional life to not be in and around IBD patients all the time professionally and also deal with it personally. I still am in chronic illness space, but I'm just not every day, all day with IBD patients. I still do the podcast with Alicia, but it's just by my choice. So it's... um, I was about to say, but then I force you into making a podcast. (laughs) We love it. We need it. But again, still in the chronic illness space professionally, but just not in the IBD space professionally, which it was, it was a hard decision to make, but it was definitely the best for my mental health. Honestly, like I just couldn't, especially with how bad the past three years were. It was, you know, I could definitely understand not wanting to have to be the provider for someone going through something similar to what I was going through and then understanding my struggle and not being able to help with their struggle. For me, that would be like, oh, it would be hard to be able to do that. Yeah. What you just said is a big part of why I realized I don't think that I'd be best suited for that is because it is so frustrating, not only step therapy as a part of like impacting patients' ability to be treated well with their IBD, but when you run out of treatment options or you're continually going through different things and nothing is working and you're just, your patients are sick or they're getting sicker or they're just staying the same and not getting better. I think I would have a real issue with like getting really personally invested in like, what else can I do for this person and they're not being a good answer. So I will leave that to the other folks that are passionate about taking care of us, which we need and I appreciate them so much. But yeah, family medicine and primary care and maybe eventually I will do a palliative medicine fellowship. I know that sounds like kind of dark and depressing, which (laughs) I just said I don't want to be around the same people that have the same illness as me. But yeah, I really liked palliative medicine so far and like the ability to treat patients like as humans and their families and like work together to keep them comfortable or whatever their goals are for their life um, on for their death. Like, I think it's a really empowering kind of person to be able to be toward that family and the patient. So we'll see down the line. I don't have to decide yet about that. So you've got a little bit of time, but I think that's really, really lovely that that's something that you see as a way that you can help people. Because I do think in general, like, especially in a, here in America, we have this kind of like death is a dirty word, you know, like we're trying to avoid it at all costs. But the reality is we we are all going to die at some point, you know, and we all want it to be a dignified, peaceful, pain-free death. And so that is definitely something you can do to help families, help people transition, you know, in, in again, the best way possible that the way that they really want their, you know, final time on earth, I was going to say months, but sometimes it's not even that a time on earth, you know? So I think it's really beautiful that somebody wants to do that. Cause I think it is, it takes a special person to really take that on because mm-hmm. <laughs> sadly, you know, you're not, you don't have repeat customers. So well, at least one of and, them isn't a repeat customer. Maybe some of the other ones come back to you. Yeah. And it's it's like thinking about medicine. It's so focused on like curative therapies and like what we can do to keep people alive. And we can do a lot to keep people alive, but at what cost and at what quality of life? Um, and just seeing more and more like on rotations this year, seeing really sad cases of people just not really living or existing comfortably anymore. And and you're like, what, what are we doing? What can't we, can't we help this person a different way? But I don't think I would, I don't think I would do that full time. I think I would still want to keep like my primary care clinic going. This is like big dreams in the future. I love it. Thinking way down the line, but we love big dreams first. So we love big dreams here. We'll help you manifest this. We'll help you manifest it into the universe. Love it. 
But I do think that's really important. I mean, you know, it goes into sort of the shared decision-making that we'd love to talk about for our folks with IBD, you know, like giving people the full picture of what is possible for them, you know, and saying, this is the thing, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, whatever it is. And here's all of the menu that you could possibly choose from. Can How can we make this what fits best with your life? And here's what that means. So like you're making this choice and it means, and in, injections every six weeks, or it means taking this oral medication that doesn't allow you to have more than tea for your cocktail, you know, that kind of stuff. And like really saying, does this fit with your lifestyle? What can we do? And palliative medicine should just be a piece of that of saying like, okay, you have this thing and it's not changing. You know, there's nothing we can do to really change it, but here's what, here's what you can do. You can do this, this thing that's going to work this way. That's going to cause this, or you can do this thing. I, I think it's such an important conversation to be having with people. And it helps the more people feel in control of whatever situation it is, the more they're going to be satisfied with what's happening. You know, and if you are making the choice to be able to say, this is the intervention I want, regardless of what outcome is, you're going to feel overall satisfied. Obviously, you know, if you die, they, you stop caring about a lot of stuff. So, you know, you don't have to worry about that satisfaction survey, but chances are there people are going <laughs> to, the family members are going to be much more comfortable with the decision and feel much more empowered and happy with the outcome, as happy as they can be with the outcome. So I just think that's really lovely. I say this like with a lot of vehemence in my voice because my dad died of pancreatic cancer. And at no point did we have a conversation with a palliative medicine person that went through the options for him. It was like, here's the chemo we're going to put you on. And nobody talked to my dad, talked to him about like, you know, his pancreatic cancer was metastasized. It was too, it was very far gone. And nobody really said like, Hey, the chances of this working are like 15%. So you can try that. Or here's this other thing you could do. And, you know, and like I'm a social worker, but I don't know about cancer treatment, a cancer care. Mm-hmm. And so it left a lot of us having to do that. And this is a premier cancer institution in the United States that people fly in from other places to go to. Mm -hmm. And this is still the outcome that we had. It's not like it was like Joe Schmo's cancer shop next door. You know, I guess that's why I'm like, I'm getting all like worked up about this and like passionate about it. Cause I just feel like you give people the menu and you let them choose and they're going to be happier with the outcomes and feel like they're in better control of the situation, regardless of what it is. So I'm going to- put myself on mute. I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Uh, It's underutilized. We need more palliative care physicians and people that care about that stuff. So but I also thought, I mean, I think it would be kind of interesting to be a, a family medicine physician because it is like a puzzle every day, right? You have no mm-hmm. idea who's walking in your door with like their weird thumb issue that developed two weeks ago, or like, yes. you know, and act like I have diarrhea for two weeks and I don't know what's going on. So kind of fun. Yeah. I told my husband yesterday, I think I broke a bone in the top of my foot. And he's like, did you go to the doctor? And I'm like, no. <laughs> No. Like, do you know my schedule? I don't have time for this. That's right. I don't have time for it. But also I actually am excited for you because the relief I felt when I went to a primary care who was familiar with IBD, I cannot express to you the relief I felt where I actually had a primary care doctor and I got to see her for three years. And then when I moved, I had to, you know, start all over again in nobody knows what IBD is world. But 
it just having her for those three years, and those were like the most challenging years I've had in a very long time with my disease. So I felt so fortunate to actually just have a primary care that I didn't have to explain what was going on. When I told her, this is what I've been going through. Here's my record. She looked it up. She actually read everything. And she's like, okay, so what we're going to do is you're going to see me every three months and I'm going to keep up with making sure that your blood work's done and making sure that your meds are working and making sure that from my end, that I'm managing your care. And it was just a relief. It was just a relief to have that. And so if you do go that route, I mean, I just can't imagine even any chronic illness patient that you have, just having the familiarity of being a chronic illness person, you know, patient yourself is going to be, it's going to be life-changing for them. I really appreciate you saying that. And I'm so glad you had someone like that in your corner because that's what family medicine doctors do. Like we're the quarterback. Well, I hopefully will be the future quarterback of the team, right? We have to follow up on all this stuff that all these different specialists may be doing for our patients and making sure that all of their concerns are getting addressed. And, and I think that's unique and cool about family medicine and having the broad scope of practice. And you can specialize a little bit more into certain things if you want to, but, but being there and helping your patient navigate the medical system is another big part of primary care, which I really love. And I am a strong patient advocate, like for myself and for any of my friends or loved ones or family members that have to deal with the medical system because it's freaking hard. I'm a patient and I'm a med- like a future medical professional. And I find it hard sometimes to navigate through all the things just to get like a medication or just to get like a lab done. Like I had to get a TB test the other day for school. Right. And to like track to make sure I don't have TB with my immunocompromised system. And I got the lab drawn and then a week and a half goes by. I don't have a result. Uh, I have to call and say, where's my lab result? And it turns out the lab didn't have enough blood, never told me that they didn't have enough blood. So they didn't run it. So how was I to know if I hadn't followed up on it? And like, if you're not health literate and you don't understand how the system works, which a large portion of America does not because it's freaking hard. You need a good person in your corner to be helping you and advocating for you. And I am really excited to do that for all my future patients. Oh my gosh. I had lab work done a couple of weeks ago and I never got the results. I forgot to follow up on it. And it was like, look, (laughs) this new prime. No, they never, they're not there. Like I I never followed up with my doctor's office to be like, dude, where are my lab results? (sighs) Gosh. What is happening? Oh, now I got to make a little note. So I yeah, do this so tomorrow. Like, get your post-it you note out. <laughs> yeah. Julia, one of the things that you were willing to speak to us about, because this is, that is important. So it doesn't seem like I'm just throwing this question at you <laughs> randomly, is talking about the implications of how officializing disease can impact your sex life or frankly, inflammatory bowel disease can affect your sex life. So let's talk about it. Yes, let's talk about it. Because I feel like that is not, asked enough. Like when you go to the doctor, that's not really a part of the questioning. Like, oh, are you having sex? How's your sex life? Do you need any support there? And especially you would think GI would ask you that and they do not. I kind of got on, like put this on the sheet to talk about because during the stem cell trial, some of the surveys included asking you how this impacts your sex life, like somewhat moderately or a lot. Um, And I really appreciated that they were taking that into consideration with the research because it can really impact not only like 
your sex drive, right? But your feelings of like, you know, being comfortable enough to do it. Like you, if I am very fortunate that I have a long-term partner and we've been together over six years, anytime I would start dating someone when I was like younger, I would obviously bring up like I have inflammatory bowel disease and I poop a lot and I don't have a colon. And that's what you're dealing with here. Like, uh, <laughs> just so you know, like that's what we're dealing with. Because if I, if they're not understanding of that or willing to like understand that, then I don't have time for you. So my boyfriend, he's in medicine as well. So that also helps. But I just like over the last two years with developing this like perianal abscess and this fistula, like it's very close to your vagina. Like your your ass and your vagina are very close, right? The holes are close. The fistula hole is close and you're draining stuff out of it. Like it doesn't smell good. It's like wet often. Like you're like, this is gross. Why would anyone want to have sex with me? Like, why would I want to engage in sexual activity when I feel gross? So that has been something I've been, you know, struggling with and trying to just manage better. And like the pain too, it's like, it hurts not with sex all the time, but sometimes with sex. So it's just important for me to like talk about this because I feel like I'm sure other people struggle with this, not only with IBD, but other, other issues. And so it's hard for me to feel like in the mood to have sex or like when my partner wants to go down on me, I'm like, I don't want, like, I want you to, but also no, because I feel self-conscious. I feel uncomfortable because I'm sure you can't smell the best. And I'm just like, it's just, everything is so messed up down there right now. So it's been, it's been hard to like, kind of keep my sex life good while dealing with all this IBD stuff, especially the last two years. But like having open communication with your partner is super important. Obviously we know that, but it can be easier said than done, right? Like you can tell them like, Hey, I don't, I don't feel like it tonight. Or like, I want to, but I am in pain. And he's always extremely understanding. I just, I always feel bad, right? Like I'm like, I want our sex life to be good, but I don't feel like I'm at my best. And then I don't feel motivated or, you know, into it. And then I start feeling bad again. And it's just like this bad cycle. So, yeah. I feel like I've said that too. Like, Hey babe, that's all jacked up down there right now. Like you don't want (laughs) to, you don't want to go there. (laughs) We don't, it's jacked up. Also, I have said, you know, I'm already lubed up. Like I've got creams in places and you know, it's, it's too late. It's too late. I've got the, you know, Boudreaux's butt paste all where it needs to be. And (laughs) I'm not, I'm not wiping it off. It's too late. Mm -hmm. But just even without the fistula, just the fact of going to the bathroom that often, if you're going to the bathroom so many times a day, wiping that much, just any of that can make you make it uncomfortable to have sex, can make you not want to have sex. It's a lot that's happening down in that area <laughs> to make you not be in the mood <laughs> in general. Yeah, I totally agree. And like, especially as like a young adult, like, and, and now society is thankfully becoming more like freely able to talk about sex and like what you enjoy and all this stuff and like problems you have. But I still feel uncomfortable, like a little bit still inside, like talking about what I'm uncomfortable with, with my sex life, because I have something that not a lot of people have to deal with regarding their sex life. And it just can be really isolating, I think is a good word for it. Cause you can talk to like, I can talk to my friend, my girlfriends about it and they can be like, oh yeah, I am not in the mood too sometimes. And I'm like, no, it's not. 
it's not, not the same. <laughs> it's not it's the not same. Bad. And it's not my partner either. Like it, he is the, I am so blessed with, with the best boyfriend in the whole wide world, I think. Um, just because of how understanding he is and willing he is to work with me on stuff. And like when I was told by a previous surgeon before, I just had this fistulotomy. We're going to go back for a second here because this is relevant. I was told the only way to treat my fistula now would be to get a diversion. So get a, a stoma and a, and a bag again for a year and let the, like, let the perianal area heal, let the inflammation go down. And then she was going to try to like sew the muscle together where the fistula was and then let another six months go by. And I was told that I could not have sex for a year while I had the stoma and was going through like this process. And I said, what are you talking about? Like, it's just like, well, the pressure of like the penis, like up against the vaginal wall and like where your fistula is. And I'm like, I don't have like a rectovaginal fistula. Like it's not there though. Why? What? And so I came home and I was like crying to my partner and I was like, are you going to be able, like, if I have to do this, are you going to be able to do this? Like I was feeling, I'm going to cry now. It was just a big thing. And you're like, I'm a young adult. Like I, I want to live my life and I don't want to have to be different. I don't want my partner to have to be like dealing with all this shit too. So thankfully I got a second opinion, but that was like a big, like, oh my God, are you serious? Obviously we would have made it work. And he was like, it'll be fine. Like there's other ways to have sex. I'm like, yeah, I know, but still. So that was a big, big thing recently that I was like, dear Lord. (laughs) Well, and I, you know, we've talked to some doctors about just the ramifications of of some of these different types of surgeries or the things that you're asking of the patients. And are they incorporating these types of messages in like, hey, by the way, this is how this may impact your sex life, you know, when you're doing these different types of surgeries or treatments. And yeah, that's a big ask of somebody to go without sex for a year. You know, this is especially when you're young and you have and you have a partner and you're not exhausted, you know, like it just you know, it's just, that's hard. I mean, facts. You know? facts on facts. <laughs> well, and, and even that goes as part of this too. If you're super anemic and you're absolutely, you know, your tank is absolutely empty by 3 PM. Like you're probably mm-hmm. not going to be like, absolutely. I'm into this now, you know? But, right. And also just the simple fact that what you're talking about is like, there's still such a stigma attached to poop, you know? Yes. yes. And so if you are struggling with continence issues, fistulas, mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. comfortable to be able to be like, this is the reason that I'm not yeah. comfortable yeah. having sex. Or one of the guests that we had on was talking about like when she is going to have sex with her partner, like the process she goes through to kind of like make sure she's in a place and feels comfortable with that's happening and mm-hmm. cleans up and does all these things because she also struggled with fistulas. And so it does seem like fistulizing disease in particular is a really big challenge for folks to deal with. Did your doctor talk to you? Like when you started to have fistulizing disease, was this something your doctor brought up to you or was it the surgeon that was the first person to bring this up? Yeah, never was brought up to me anything about sex with, with perianal disease. And until the consult that I had a couple months ago to talk about treatment options and Another thing I think, like when you're diagnosed as a kid and you have a big surgery as a kid, obviously at 10, they're not worried about like my sexual, like a bit, thank God, like that's way too young to be doing anything sexual related. But when you're that young diagnosed, like you don't get talked to about like, if like, say like I wanted to have anal sex, like 
I, I don't, number one, but if I did, right, I don't think I should or could do that with the anastomosis where it is like in my rectum, right? But I've never been told specifically that I can't have anal sex, but I'm like, I probably, that's probably not a good idea, but how is everyone supposed to know that? I haven't either. Yeah. And I just had my J-Pot surgery in 2020. Yeah. I had my colon removed at 25 and had an ileal rectal anastomosis. So my, I had four inches of my rectum connected right to my ileum after I had a, an ileostomy for a year. And then I had my J pouch built in 2020. Same, like no one talked to me about how that was going to affect my sex life. And that's the same thing in the sense that they are surgically recreating my anus, right? And that is very close to my vagina. There's a lot of surgical stuff happening down there. They're pulling my small intestines down to be able to connect it to my anus. And so they're moving a lot of shit around down there. Yeah. And so nobody talked to me about like how this could affect my sex life. And actually, I, you know, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to shit the bed. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. Let's just find out together. But my first thought was also pelvic floor therapy and like bringing mm. that into this, like when you're doing all these things and like, you know, your pelvic floor is obviously impacted regardless. And so all of that plays into your ability to have comfortable sex as well. Yeah. Yeah. Never have been talked to about my pelvic floor. Because as a woman of childbearing age who is interested in having children in the future, not right now, but in the future, I have to be proactive in asking questions about how is my disease going to impact like when I want to get pregnant, if I want to get pregnant, how I'm able to have the baby come out. Like I finally asked my colorectal surgeon who just did the surgery Monday, I was like, hey, like I am worried about my fertility, number one, because of all the abdominal surgeries I've had and the scarring and the adhesions and who knows my fallopian tubes might be scarred off and like no, no eggs can get down. And she was like, well, the good thing is patients with IBD, you can undergo IVF after six months of trying without being able to conceive instead of 12 months, like quote unquote, normal people um, that are having trouble conceiving. But then I asked, well, I mean, I know I can't, I probably can't have a vaginal birth with fistulizing disease like actively, but could I ever have a vaginal birth if I get rid of these fistulas? And she straight up told me, nope, that's not going to be for you. Like you're going to get a C-section and because you don't want to risk, you're going to tear, you just will. And you don't want to risk messing up, right? Your, your, your pouch connection and your ability to keep your bowel movements coming out of your butt for now. So I was like, yeah, you're right. I'm down. I'll get the section. That's fine. But something like, who's going to tell me that if I don't ask? Or like, who's going to talk to me about fertility? And I mean, I know it's kind of like, you don't want to assume that women want to have kids, but I think it'd be important to, you know, ask somebody with, with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or with fistulizing disease, like that's a woman of childbearing age. Like, Hey, are you interested in this ever? And here, let me talk to you about some stuff. If you are and some other soapbox, I'll get off of them. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and also, but even at like, and I don't know a whole lot of 10 year olds that are like, a hundred percent. I want to be a parent, but I have had some friends that like, just from the time they were old enough to hold baby dolls were like, I want to have kids. And so you would think that also like, even as a 10 year old facing this surgery that they might've been like, Hey, Julia, like, does this seem like something you're interested in? Because like, do they take different measures? I don't know. I'm curious with like fistulizing disease, like doesn't matter J pouch wise. If you, if you had 
been diagnosed with Crohn's right from the beginning and you didn't have to have the full colectomy and J-pouch surgery and everything like that, would they still have concerns about vaginal birth if you just had fistulizing disease? Do you know that? I'm asking you as if you're a gastroenterologist, which you're not, but you know, I'm just going to ask you anyway. Yeah, I can, I can give it a shot. I'm not positive. The reason I think you it's also because... ask for the doctors. Too, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're my stand in today, Julia. Yes. I think because of the inflammation in the perianal area, when you have fistulas and the weakness that you can get like in the muscles and the surrounding tissue, just with, I mean, the force of childbirth is like pretty yeah. crazy. So yeah. any kind of inflammation or weakness down there can be, can put you at risk for really bad tears, but I don't know the specifics. So yeah, that sounds pretty convincing to yeah. me. Definitely I feel consult like, uh, someone with their degree. <laughs> no, I, I feel logical. like that's, yeah, that sounds very convincing to me. I'm buying it. We're just going to make you the new resident expert on fistulizing disease and childbirth and just, you know, Love it. that's going to be the thing. Happy too. <laughs> <laughs> so Anything else we want to talk about sex-wise? Because I do think this is a really interesting topic and it's not necessarily one we've had any patients talk about. We've just had like, you know, actual full-fledged gastroenterologists not in training talk about this with us. I'm glad that you were willing to talk about this. Yeah, I appreciate the space because I'm I'm a pretty sex positive person. Like I think it's good to talk about having a healthy sex life and openly discussing it with your providers, your friends, your family, like not your family, sorry, your your partner. <laughs> family would be a little too, too much. I mean <laughs> Depends on your relationship with your family, but yeah, that does feel a little strange. Still feels weird. But yeah, I don't think I have anything else specific I wanted to touch on, just that it can be it can be hard. And I just want people out there to know that you can have a quote unquote normal sex life with IBD. You just may have to work a little bit harder at it. And you need to be with someone who understands what you're going through as best they can. And if you get any inkling that somebody is pressuring you or being weird about it, like that is not the person for you. Agreed. 100% agreed with that statement. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so many people that are going to be really understanding of this and all of us have our own weird baggage that we carry with us. And so hopefully nobody is being a douchebag about this because, (laughs) you know, that's important. It's an important piece of relationship. And I'm really glad that you and your partner have such great communication that you're able to really make this something that you're talking about. But yes, it needs to be something that people talk about. And I do think there is still a fair amount of gastroenterologists that are a little reticent to talk about this because they don't necessarily know the answers to give you and maybe Mm -hmm. don't necessarily have the resources to share. But just opening that space and holding that space for people to bring it up sometimes is enough. And, and, you know, and then hopefully you'll also go out and try to find some of these resources and training to help you have the conversations. But I do think there's some that have particular discomfort around this, probably, especially the pediatric gastroenterologists. I would imagine that's not something they're like, yes, I want to have this conversation. Yeah, but they are treating older teens, people going Mm -hmm. to college. And it's something that even if they're not currently sexually active, some of the procedures that they're doing will affect what's going to be a part of their very near future. So it's important conversations to have. Medicine in general is like, there's still a lot of old white men as providers, (laughs) right? So we're trying to fight Right now, women are, you know, make up more than 50% of medical school classes now. But I think a lot of the GI doctors I've personally worked with in the past have been old white men, and they're not the best at talking to young women about sex. And maybe they feel uncomfortable about it too. But I think as as we transition to more diverse medical professional populations, especially in GI, then maybe it will get a little bit better. Agree. 
I want to back up for a second because you mentioned your mom had ulcerative colitis and I wonder what it was like to grow up with somebody who had inflammatory bowel disease, number one. And I also am curious if at any point you and your mom got into conversations about decisions that she made and how much her disease informed those decisions and sort of how it affected your your care before you were able to take it on as an adult and sort of fully drive that car. Yeah, that's a great question and topic to talk about. I, I am grateful my mom had IBD before me, but I wouldn't, if she could not have it, that'd be great too. But having her go through everything, it was like three or four years before I had to get my surgery. She's had a total colectomy. She has a J pouch. Like she went through, she also got like a bowel perforation. She's been life flighted and had to have emergency surgery. Like she's had a whole run of stuff, like a couple of years before I got diagnosed. And I am so thankful that she was there as not only my mom, but as someone to relate to with IVD and like someone that could make the situation fun and funny and like laugh about stuff and like make jokes and know how to take care of a stoma and know like the pooping and farting and like accidents and like being my advocate as I went through school and like telling me that I can do all the things I want to do as a kid. And it just was really like, we say we're two peas in a pod because we're so similar and have gone through so many of the same things in life that we are extra bonded. As far as her like making decisions when I was a kid from her perspective, like her disease informing her decisions, I think it just made her more I guess, aggressive as an advocate saying like, no, this is not normal. This is not working for her. This is not, this is not it. We need to do something else. And always getting me in to appointments. Like she was the best at advocating for me as a kid. I I know I'm sure parents are good at that in general if they don't have um, a chronic illness, but I think her having it especially was helpful because she kind of knew the lay of the land a little more intimately than someone who has a child with IBD that has never heard of IBD and has never done anything with IBD. So I was very grateful to have her really hardcore advocating for me and my symptoms really early on. And then the colectomy, I think she had a choice a little bit. Like it was like, you could wait another week or two. We could do some more, you know, steroids, antibiotics, all this stuff and see if it resolves. But the recommendation was to go forward with the surgery and her having had it already. I think she was like, she at that point was decently recovered and knew that it was likely going to be a much better outcome than having to deal with a pretty gross colon for the rest of forever. So I think that helped her be comfortable with the team at the Cleveland Clinic that she was working with and and that was taking care of me, make that decision. But yeah, she's always been in my corner, obviously. And it's so fun to have someone to joke around with about all the poop stuff. Like it's just, yeah, it's so unique and special. So my daughters have both had colonoscopies and they're in their early twenties. And I think Bailey has actually had two now. Mm-hmm. So they don't have IBD, haven't been diagnosed with it yet, but I mean, I feel like they, <laughs> how many people that are in their early twenties have had multiple <laughs> colonoscopies by the time that happens. So we have lots of poop jokes as well. That's me as a mom with no colon. So <laughs> It it is what it is. Unfortunately, it's time for us to wrap 
Well, it's time for me to ask you the last question. And that is, what's the one piece of advice you have for the IBD community? Yes, I have really enjoyed talking to you guys too. Thank you so much for having me. It's really nice to have a space to be able to candidly talk about this stuff. So my advice for the IBD community, I think it's going to be two parts. I know you said one thing, but I just wanted to say that being diagnosed with IBD, I think will lead you to your passion in life. And you may not realize what it is yet, or you may not understand kind of the the situation that your life now is when you first are diagnosed, but I truly believe that it will lead you to the thing you're meant to do in your life, which for me is medicine, but for other people, it could be a whole slew of different things. So just be open to the journey and really need to connect with a community of people that are your age. So finding a supportive environment or group, or for me, it was the Snapchat group with Grady. I connected with him my senior year of college. I had already been diagnosed for a long time, but it was so important for me to have a community of my peers that are around my same age to be able to talk about all things IDD with. So those are my two little snippets. Those are great snippets. And yes, I agree. I think having a group that's in the same like stage of life as you are to help you kind of navigate through it, I think is definitely really, really helpful for a lot of people. Julia, it was such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for talking so openly and candidly and sharing so much because I really think a lot of people are going to find this really valuable and really identify with you. And so thank you. Thank you everyone else for joining the podcast and cheers. Cheers. Thank you guys so much. Cheers, everybody. Hey everyone, this is Julia. And if you enjoyed listening to this episode, please rate, review, and share with a friend so that more people can hear all of the wonderful folks with IBD's stories. Thanks.